Okay, so I'm really excited to do the uh, Book of Ruth. It's a really fun book. It's short, so you might like that. I like that too. It's short, but it's a really fun book. Uh, again, this is uh, one of two books that are named after women um, in the in the books of uh, books of the Bible. And Ruth is actually one of four women that is mentioned in genealogy of Jesus in uh, Matthews. So there's some of the women we know, like the woman who let the spies leave when the Israelites went into a what is it? Where? Jericho. Jericho. And what's her name? Rahab. Rahab, right? So she's mentioned among, along with Rahab and two other women. Um, she's mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. So she is significant. Uh, but her story is also very interesting. Just like Esther, uh, when we go back and look at the story of Esther, we know that the story is about ordinary people achieving greatness. That's been our theme. Really just plain ordinary people achieving greatness by their obedience. What we see is the obedience, courage, we see prayer, we see the way they prepare themselves, preparation, and after all is said and done, they trust in God to take over and wait for God, wait on God. That's what we see in the story of Ruth too. So Ruth is in many ways the same as the story of Esther. Uh, All the characters in the story of Ruth are ordinary, very, very ordinary. And um, there's a trouble, and there's also a resolution to that trouble. Uh, we also see God's hand of providence. So the running theme is that to ordinary people, in the time when God is invisible, that God is visible by His hand of providence. That we see God through the way He provides, the way He's there, the way He secures us. So we see that, but the flip side of that is it also requires humans to act in it, in trusting God. And we saw that in the story of Esther. So like Esther, Ruth is read during the festival. Like uh, the, Esther is read during the festival of uh, Purim. And Ruth is read during the festival of weeks, which is actually festival for harvest. So this is also a story that Israelites, the Jews, cherish. And they read and hear this story at least once every year. So it's a pretty exciting story. Uh, let's dive in. It's also a fun story. There's some... Interesting things that happen. It's almost like a, there, there's a bit of Esther, but there's also a bit of you know Cinderella type of story too. There's a little bit of romance, if you can call that a romance, and you know what that means when we when we come to chapter three. It's four chapters. We are dividing that into four weeks. So each week we'll go through the, each chapter. Actually, they divide up pretty well. So uh, today we're going to tackle chapter one, and next week chapter two. Chapter 3 is the romancing part of the story, and chapter 4 um, kind of concludes the uh, concludes the story for us. So, it's a lot of fun. So, let's dive right in. And uh, and as we go through this, especially in the first few verses, we'll figure out the authorship and date and other stuff that we usually do as an introduction of a book um, on those in those in those verses. So, this is Book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read a verse, and you will read the next one. Verse 1, in the days when judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with two sons. Both Malone and Kilion also died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return to the daughters of Allah in the country of Allah, for she had heard the country of So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you in the house of your husband. 
Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Would you then wait until they have grown? They were grown. Would you then refrain from, <coughs> refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Where you die, I will die. There will I be buried. May the Lord do thus, as so to me, and more as well, if death, if even death parts me from you. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? And I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me? And the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned together with Ruth and Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab, beginning of the Bethlehem, beginning of the barley harvest. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the story of your people, because in those stories we see your work. Help us to see who you are and what you do and how you are in dealing with your people, that we may see your goodness, your sovereignty, and that we may submit our lives to you. Give us the wisdom to understand. Give us wisdom to relate to our lives and relate to how we are to live for you. We pray that your words will convict us and lead us to live a life in obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, any thoughts or impressions? <laughs> that's okay we'll go through that we'll go through the verses as we would this is kind of different it's a narrative and we have been dealing with narrative so it's kind of fun to go through the verses and actually get the deeper uh, you know depth in the story of the verses that you know we just read there's a lot more to it any impressions any thoughts something that stood out to you Is it normal? Um, I don't think it's normal. I don't think this is a typical case where both sons die and they are left with no more sons. Typically, there's a Libirate, um kind of law or setup that where one son died and the, the wife of the, that son marries another son who's not married or marries a son in addition to his wife. So there's that caring for the wife because in this time, the woman without a husband, without a man or father or husband is really alone. There's no security. There's no food to be provided. There's no way that she can, a woman can survive without having a man in her life. So, it's not normal, just to give you a short answer. But the situation isn't normal either. Yeah, it's it, we see it tragic and, you know, that's sort of the tone of chapter one. And But overall tone of the story is a little bit different from Esther. Uh, but we'll go ahead and tackle that. First five verses we see is fairly critical because it provides us the backdrop of the story and there are information that is critical for us understanding why the story is happening, the significance the author is bringing to the story by looking at the backdrop and uh, of the story. So let's go ahead and read um, from verse 1. Verse 1, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in a country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. So this gives us setting, the time of the setting, which he says it's the time is the days when the judges ruled. So 
This refers to time of judges in Israel, which is from 1200 BC to 1000 BC. This is time between Joshua. We study the book of Joshua. This is time from death of Joshua to the coronation of Saul. That's the time of judges. And among judges, we know famous ones like Gideon, Barbara, uh, Samson. We, uh, we see a lot of famous judges. But we, see, we know that story of judges is a crazy story. It's where we clearly understand that Bible isn't made for PG-13 or PG, right? There's a lot of violence. So it's referring to that time, and that gives us a, a good background to the story. Because a lot of stuff that you would read in the time of Judges, the author is bringing out the story of Ruth to give us contrast to this time. Whatever's happening in this story is different, completely opposite of what had happened in the story of Judges, because Judges is filled with violence, disobedience. It's the most rebellious time of Israel. Who's read Judges? Any of you? Not yet. Um, judges is a fun book, but there's a continuing theme, pattern in the Judges, where Israelites were disobedient. Uh, and so God let them be destroyed by another country. They will be occupied, and God will bring up a judge, Judge will lead them back to God, and they'll go fight the, uh, the other country, and there will be peace for 30 years. And then Israelites will be rebellious again, and they'll be taken by another country. Judge will rise, rescue them, and there will be peace. It's the repetition of this over and over again. That's the book of Judges. So there's a lot of violence, and the end of the Judges is where the tribes are killing each other. This is Israelite tribes, right? There's actually annihilation of one or two tribes through this time of Judges. And it ends with where these tribes is trying to secure their, you know, family line so they go out and kill other family line and bring women to their side. So there's a lot of violence. But chapter 17 and 21 of Judges starts by these men left from Bethlehem to go out and they did this violent thing. So, it's actually good to keep that in mind, um, because that's going to come up. Now, there was a famine in the land, uh, and that famine also connects to the time of Judges, right? The terrible things, the rebellious time that Israelites had, and this is during that time. So, it is saying that the famine may have to do with God's punishment or judgment of God. And Old Testament, when we look at it, there's a lot of times there's reference to famine being the judgment of God. And, you know, it's more than understandable that famine be in this town because of what had happened during the time of Judges. But what's ironic is Bethlehem, the meaning of Bethlehem is house of bread. So, it's to say house of bread and ran out of food is, uh, is, is to say that famine is so severe. Even in Bethlehem, which is named house of bread, there is no food. Um, so, famine... The condition caused this family with wife and two sons to move. So they moved to Moab. Moab, however, is not the best destination for a Israelite to move to. Because Moab, uh, location-wise, it's in the east of Jordan River. So basically, it's a country east of Israel. It's the neighboring country, about 50 miles away, just crossing the Jordan. And the way the Moab came about is they're the descendants of Moab who is son uh, born out of incest. The Abraham's cousin, Lot, slept with, had intercourse with his daughter, and had a son, and his name is Moab. So Moab is considered defilement to Israelites. They were strictly told not to enter into assembly of God. So Moabites are not allowed in the assembly of God. They are frowned upon. If anybody hang out with Moabites, it's frowned upon. Israelites do not enter the country of Moab. Moab, through the time of Judges, attacked Israel several times. So they're considered enemy. They're considered not to deal with. They're considered as people who are defiled. And they worship a god called Chemosh, which means they didn't worship the god of Israel, even though the family came from the line of Abraham. So, you see... Uh, they moved to Moab, but that wasn't the best country to move to, their best place to move to. And we get the name of the characters. The characters' names are Elimelech, Naomi, Malone, and Chilion. Right? Elimelech means, my God is king. That's the, name of, that's the meaning of his name. 
But we see that he hasn't really acted. He's not really acting like his name. Because unlike his name, he makes a possibly a poor decision. Right? As a father, he needs to make a decision. My family is starving. There's no food. What do I do? Right? And his decision is purely economical. We need to go to a place where there's food. I heard in that enemy country, in the country that we're told not to deal with and be in, has food. So he just seeks out economical, what makes sense. You know, it's like us looking for a place there's a low cost of living and more job opportunity. It doesn't matter where that it might be. We're going to move there. It's like Chinese people in the time of Japanese colonization moving to Japan. It's like, you know, Jewish people moving to Germany. Um, it's economical sense, but he is leaving behind what may be more significant than surviving. Because just to survive, they may survive physically, but they're moving to a country where there is no worshipping of God, no godly woman for their sons to marry, um, which means their spiritual cost may be more than their economical cost. So, when I think about this, and you reflect on people you know, this is how most people make decisions in nowadays, I think, especially in America, where we consider making decisions. What does it make economically? It makes more sense economically for us to do this. And when doing so, we neglect the spiritual cost. Right? Let's move there because it makes more sense. Well, is there a church? Is there a community? How are you going to survive spiritually? We make decisions purely based on educational. Oh, there are good schools over there. Families do this with their kids. Let's move there because there are good preschool and kindergarten and elementary school there. It will be good for my children. And they move because purely for educational reasons, economical reasons, and not spiritual reasons. So it's good for us to reflect on, have you made those decisions? Have you been making decisions purely based on what is logical, what is economical, what is socially makes sense? I know more people there. I have my friends there or family there. Disregarding the spiritual cost. What would happen to my spiritual life? Let's go on and consider verse 2. Verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech and the sons, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malone and Chilion. Naomi, the meaning of her name, means pleasant, sweet. It's a good name, right? Malone and Chilion, on the other hand, means sick and dying. Whoever names their children this. So, what this tells is just because the name looks cool and it's in the Bible, don't name your children that. Do not name your children Kilion, uh, even though it sounds cool, that right? Sounds really cool, <laughs> uh, I think, um, yeah, in the TV show, Once Upon a Time, there's a guy named Kilion. Um, it's a cool name, right? Name is cool, but it means dying. Uh, they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Ephrathites, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, that's a significant phrase. This phrase occurs three times in all of the Bible. One is here. The other one is in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12. In referring to King David, it says, As the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. The other time occasion that this is mentioned is in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, which is telling of the prophecy. It says, I'll read for you, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient of days. Three times mentioned. It's here, King David, and obviously who? Jesus. So, little spoiler, but the significance of Ruth, do you know why Ruth, the story of Ruth is so significant? Really? None of you know? Maybe I should hold back and tell you, not tell you. Yes, I will hold back and not tell you. <laughs> you may figure out as we go on. Um, now, what happens to them? They, nothing but bad, right? They went away, they moved because it made sense. They wanted to secure their, you know, lives to have food and to survive and to live on. But verse 3, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, what? Died. Died. 
and she was left with her two sons. So, so much for relocating to survive. Elimelech died. Verse 4, These two Moabite wives, the name of the ones was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. Other Ruth. When they had lived there about 10 years, she got married. So, sons got married, but to Moabite woman, which is not a good choice. It says they lived there for 10 years, but there's no mention of children. We know that they had no children. 10 years without children is basically saying that officially they are barren. This is another tragedy, right? This is another tragedy. And there's, we kind of see the hint with the root, hint of Sarah and Hannah and other women that are mentioned in the Bible who had went 10 years without having a child, but later who the Lord provides child. Okay, that's not giving away a hint again either, right? Okay, verse 5, but Malone and Chilion also died. So the sons died too. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. So even sons died, right? They tried to survive, but what it's showing is it doesn't matter how we try so hard to survive. Really, life and death is in God's hand. So we know that situation is really, really, really bad for Naomi and her uh, daughters-in-law, especially for Naomi. We know that losing husband and losing sons to children, it's a tragic. Even now, we know how hard that is. But then, in this time in history, in this place, not having any men, no sons, no husband means... There's no financial support. There's no security. There's nothing. This woman literally has nothing. And it's not like there's a social service to provide for her. There's nothing. She is utterly alone. Just with her two daughters-in-law. So, what we find in first five verses is for Naomi, her life is nothing but bleak, dark, hopeless. It's an absolute devastation, desolation, and just desperation in her life. This woman is done. There is nothing for her. There is no hope. She's utterly alone. So verse 6, Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord has considered His people and given them food. So she decides to move from Moab back to her country, back to Bethlehem, back to Judah. Which is the right thing to do, right? When you are alone, when you're left, best thing to do is go where you're familiar. Like we talk about, if I was to die, what would Esther do? She'd go back to Korea, right? Because there's her family, she's familiar, she can find a ways. Much better than being in a strange land, right? In a foreign land. But her motive here is not so much of lack of choice and she's just moving. It, it is a choice. Because what it's mentioned here is, there's a mention of God. She sees, she has heard that there is a blessing. God is blessing the land of Bethlehem, land of Judah again. There's a food in Bethlehem. So she sees God's blessing, and she is going after God's blessing. And what we recognize immediately is that unlike the story of Esther, God is mentioned here. And God is mentioned in the book of Ruth 23 times in total. Twice by the author, and the rest in speech between the characters. As we see that God appears in the time of the most bleak and hopeless situation. And we see that there is possibly hand of God's providence about to appear, right? So the theme continues and we wait. Huh, what's going to happen? And the theme is that God is at work in the lives of most ordinary people in a very subtle way. right? So Naomi's situation is that she has decided to go back. The word we see here, go back, occurs 12 times in these three, five verses. She says over and over, she says, I'm going back to the country. She says to her daughters, you, you need to go back to the country. Somehow they followed her along as she left Moab and somewhere in the middle of their traveling, which is about 50 miles away, traveling, which isn't that long or far, she said, you know, you need to go back to her daughters. So verse 8, she says, go back, each of you, to your mother's house. Which is odd. It's not father's house, it's mother's house. 
um, there's commentator said it's, she says it mothers out because this has to do with you know, her daughters-in-law finding husbands again and mother has more to do in deciding who the husbands will be and all of that but this phrase also caused the commentators to wonder when we're considering who the author of Ruth is there's a talk that author of Ruth might be a woman which is kind of cool I like it hey woman author in the Bible that's great right especially for a book that is for the women we can't really be sure, but it's possible. Um, and we know that the, 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 in this book, two main characters are also women. So it's really interesting. Possibly written by women. The main characters are women. And what's really interesting is, in this book of Ruth, there is a lot of conversation. Precisely 52% of all of it, all the book, is conversation. Because, you know, woman likes to talk <laughs> they like to have a conversation right so in every situation every turn you know what they're doing they have a conversation about it right they're talking so this is like you know this is a critical time in you know in life of home of with children who's in elementary school because there's summer camp this is critical time so Esther would come to me and she would talk well, let, let's talk about summer camp right so she'll show me stuff this, what do you think about this summer camp and blah, blah. I say, okay, that looks good. That's it, right? Should come back. Well, what do you think about this summer school? I say, we already talked about this. I said, that looks good. Well, but I want to talk more about it. <laughs> right? That's woman, right? Woman has to talk about it. Man, we don't like to talk about it. If this book was written by man, it'd be like a chapter, right? They did happen, they decided to do this, and that happened. So we don't talk about stuff, we make decisions <laughs> right away. It's not so. In this book, especially when you see this part of the chapter, three women has to talk about it. It's long. All of it is talking about it. So we'll skip that part. <laughs> Just kidding. We'll go through that. Um, so let's go back. So Naomi wants to send them home. right? Naomi wants to send them home. Why? Because she cares for them or because she just wants to be left alone? And we don't know her um, motive in trying to send her daughters home. There may be because she cares. It could be. And what it seems like, hey, there's a better chance for you to survive if you go back to your own country. Makes sense. Maybe she cares. Maybe, or maybe because two Moabite women, widows following her, could be baggage, right? There's sort of baggages for her. She can start off fresh, but Moabite, Moabite woman with her in a country where she has no home, nothing, it's hard enough for her to survive on her own, and there are these two girls. So we don't know the motive, and throughout the book, you're going to hear, you're going to read conversation where one, uh, the character says one thing, but it's very ambiguous. You say, does, she, does this person mean what they say? So it's good to kind of wonder about that and try to get deeper into that. So she sends them, or wants to send them, but she prays. There's a prayer on in verse, uh, I think verse 9, uh, verse 8. And another thing about the book of Ruth is there are lots of prayers in the book of Ruth. Unlike Esther. Um, and I'm going to highlight them all. You're going to see every week when we go through this chapter, they're going to be in red um, color of font. There's always a lot of prayers. And the, all the prayers are not about prayer for her or himself, but it's prayer for others. And another thing about prayer in Ruth is, all of them comes true in the book. So pay attention to these prayers and look out for them. So here's our prayer. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The word kindly here is chesed in Hebrew, which is referred when the Israelites talk about God is said, which is the loving kindness of God. So, what she is praying is, there's nothing I can give you to her daughters-in-law. What I can give, what I can give you, but the, may the Lord, may God give you what I can give you. May God give you the kindness that she, uh, that He has promised. Verse nine: The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. She prays for two things, right? Security and husband. Which actually in this society is the same thing. 
So remember that she prayed for these things, for this woman. Uh, the Orpah, we're not going to see again from this point on, but Ruth, will she find what, Ruth had, what Naomi has prayed for, which is husband and security? And then what do they do at the end of their verse? It says, then she kissed them and they wept aloud. So it's definitely woman author, right? <laughs> there's a kissing, there's a lot of weeping, a lot of crying. Um, now, after that, they do more talking, right? <laughs> Naomi makes a good case where why they shouldn't stay with her. Um, you know, they say, you know, you can remarry, but I can't. I'm too old to have kids for you to marry. It really makes no sense for you to stay with me, right? So she explains, which makes sense. And verse 14, then they wept aloud again. There's more crying. Um, and Opa kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So Opa takes the counsel of wise counsel, logical counsel of older woman. There's nothing to diminish Opa's decision here. She made a choice, and which is very logical, which makes sense, which is right choice, which Naomi insisted upon. But Ruth does not. She does not take this counsel. And Naomi says, in verse 15, she, uh, so she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. So basically what Naomi is saying is, You too, go back to your people and go back to your gods. Which is really weird. Because it's so anti-evangelical. <laughs> um, you know, it's so anti, you know, it's not like, come to our God. It's not, you know, go back to your gods. Go back to your people. Maybe because she already seen that Opa has done so. So she's insisting that uh, Ruth does the same thing. And so the Ruth answers, and here's the famous line of all in Ruth. Many people have heard this, and maybe you have heard this. It's verse 16. But Ruth said, do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Here's the famous line. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She's committed, right? This is her conversion. She said, my, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Naomi's God is, the God of Israel is one God. So when Naomi, uh, Ruth is saying it, she's saying, I will disregard my God. I will leave this God's of my people, and I will follow your God, who is the only God. It's a bold move. We're going to see more of this, How what a choice that she has made. She's not only moving to a place where there's no job, no family, no home, no friends, a strange land for her, but she's moving to a country where she is going to be a minority, not only a minority, a person who will be frowned upon. She will not be invited to the assembly of people. She will not be invited to many places. She will be segregated. She, she, there will be prejudice against her. She knows this fully. What kind of person she is. And there is a continuing mentioning of uh, the Moabite woman named Ruth. The author reminds us that she is a Moabite in the land of Israel. Verse 17, where you die, I will die, there will I be buried. Basically confirming that this is it. I'm going to stay with, stay with you until I die. May the Lord do thus and so do me. And more as well, if even death parts me from you. So this verse right here, is. have you heard of it? Have you heard it? Yes, most of you heard it. Where is it used? A lot of times it's used in the wedding. This is like, it's used as a wedding vows, which... I think is entirely inappropriate. <laughs> Somehow they forget about the part where Naomi's, you know, Ruth said, "Don't tell me to go back. Don't tell, me, don't tell me to leave you." It's really taken out of context. This is a, this is a word that's done by one widow to another widow. So you see how people use Bible verses out of context. So do not use these as your vows <laughs> or uh, caution your friends who like to use this as your vows. Or have you, do you know anybody who's used this in <laughs> Okay, it's not good. Um, here's what I find most strange about this book. I think this makes this book so unreal, not real, because mother-in-law, <laughs> it's not this nice, right? Daughter-in-law is not this loyal. <laughs> it's not real. You look at 
I don't know if you know of relationship your mothers have with your grandmother. Um, mother-in-law, and this is made fun a lot in, in you know Western society, how mother-in-law is really difficult to deal with and how daughter-in-law is difficult to deal with by mother-in-law. This is not real. This doesn't happen, right? There's no one like Naomi and there's no daughter-in-law like Ruth, right? Um, it's just not there. You know, who's like Naomi, right? This mother-in-law. No one's like that. No one's like that. Uh, because in our society, even us, and even in an Eastern society, daughter-in-law is viewed almost virtually as a like slave to your sons, to mother, right? Mothers like to abuse the daughters-in-law for the sake of their sons. This is how it's done. You think I'm lying? Get older and you'll find out, Right? <laughs> You will find out. This is how it's done. It's a very difficult relationship. And here, there's so much love between and loyalty between that. It makes like, is this real? Right? Is this real? And what happens is people use this story of Ruth and Naomi to say, see, you should be like Ruth. You need, I need complete obedience and loyalty from you because you ought to be like Ruth. And some people say, you should be like Naomi, really loving your daughter-in-law like your daughters, receiving them. Which I would say, that's very, um, that's really not the point of the story. Right? This is very unusual. And really, what the author is not trying to say isn't be like them, but what the author is saying is, there's a very different relationship here. There's a unique relationship here. And the Ruth makes a choice, which Naomi discourages her choice. Right? So, do not abuse this story to tell others that you should be like Ruth or you should be like Naomi. Because it, this is a very unusual story. We need to work with how it is in our society um, and just work within those relationships, but not press upon a viral versus which is out of context to make people do um, and make them feel guilty. It's mostly irrelevant to most of you, but Esther gets it. Um, <laughs> I want you to remember this, what I said to you, okay? This, this will come relevant to you. <laughs> um, well, she'll be away from her mother-in-law. So. Okay, so they get to the Bethlehem, Naomi and Ruth, right? And their arrival in town stir, stirs up, right? People are stirred up because their arrival. And here's what Naomi says, which is what we're going to focus on next. Verse 19, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. The woman said, Is this Naomi? Verse 20, She said to them, Call me no longer Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has dealt harshly with me? And the Almighty, there's two different callings, right? Lord is Yahweh, Yahweh, Almighty is Shaddai. Okay, um, so there's two different callings, twice the same. Almighty has brought calamity upon me. It's no surprise, clearly the woman, Naomi, is devastated. So her name means sweet, but she says, Komimara, which means bitter, which is opposite of sweet. And uh, what we re- recognize clearly is that she blames God for ultimately being responsible for her tragedies. And this is her claim. Right? Not the author's claim, because these are her words. And what we see is, unlike other people we know in the Bible, like Job and Jeremiah, other people who, who uh, experience um, tragedies, she's not interested in knowing why has this happened. She's not interested in whining or lamenting. She's not interested in asking God to change her condition. She's beyond that. And we can see how desperate she is, devastated she is. She's beyond asking for anything. She has accepted it. She said, this is me. This is what has happened. The, the question is, is God to blame for her misfortune? It seems that her husband has something to do with it, right? He's the one who made a choice to, the, to move to a country where he shouldn't have. And it seems that her sons marrying Moabite girls had something to do with it, right? Doing something they shouldn't. So some... Traditional commentators say they have been punished. They have been judged. 
But I think, you know, Naomi knows that, what had happened. But she still sees God as the cause, as the blame for what had happened to her. So much that in earlier verse, in verse 6, um, when she's talking to her daughter's-in-law, she says, God is no longer her friend. God is a foe. God is an enemy. God has turned against her. What I like about it is that she's very honest. You know, we often be asked, like, how are you? And what are our answers? Good. good. We're doing good, right? Well, how are things going with you? Oh, fine. It's going good. You know, you ask Naomi, how are things going with you? Naomi says, my life sucks. <laughs> God is against me. It's terrible. Right? It's actually nice to be honest. She draws upon her what she needs, her help. So it's a good lesson for us to be honest, especially in the community of God. When you're asked, be honest. I think 99% we lie when you're asked, how are you? Oh, good. No, it's not good, right? Not good. There's a lot of struggles. There's, there's sad, there's loneliness, there's trouble, there's depression, there's hurt. We're not okay. Being honest. And at least that's what Naomi is doing. People say, hey, Naomi, is it you? I said, don't call me Naomi. <laughs> don't call me sweet. I'm no longer sweet. I'm not a sweet lady. I'm an old hag, right? I'm an old hag. I'm bitter. You don't want to be around old, bitter hag, right? It's the worst person to be with old lady who's very bitter. Say, so don't, don't come around me. I am bitter. And God is to blame for it. So the question is, is God to blame for our tragedies in our lives and misfortune? That's the big question here. How do you take it? You know, how do we take it? How do people take it when the tragedy is upon them? When something terrible happens? We ask questions. I, I can think of three questions that we may ask, which may lead us to write questions. But the first question we ask is, is this God? Did God cause it? Which I think is a bad question because you look at the circumstances and it's pretty clear when there's a tragedy, there's something else has caused it, right? And then we wonder, then is everything just cause and effect? There's no God's intervention. God has no control over it. It's just cause and effect. Something happened. Someone did something. Therefore, there is a tragedy in my life. So when we ask question, did God cause it? Is this God? It's a difficult question. Right? When there seems to be no, nothing else, someone just tragically dies. I know a friend, a person whose daughter, a teenage daughter, playing soccer, just collapsed and died. Doctor could find no reasons, even to, until this day. She just dropped dead while they were watching her playing soccer. Right? The tragedy, right? How do you deal with that? Did God cause it? What happened? So we ask the next question. Doesn't everything at least pass through God? Which is a good question. Which is a question probably Naomi has struggled and asked. Does God allow or let things happen? Doesn't God have power to intervene and change things? On the flip side, doesn't God have power to bless too? He could have blessed. He could have intervened. He could have stopped. So that leads us to think, did he allow this? And it's the question of sovereignty of God. Is everything out of God's control? Is this out of God's control? Or is it still in God's control? And we believe, the God we believe, is sovereign. That everything is in his control. But then, that makes us, that leads us to place where Naomi is. We can be bitter. We can be sad because, well then why did you let this happen? Think about the tragedies. When a little child suffers and dies, we ask question, God, why are you letting this happen? We don't understand. Right? We don't understand. So that leads us to ask this question. Why does God let tragedies happen in lives of His people? Not just worldly tragedies, earthquake and people die and all that, but what about His people? And we, from the story of Esther, we talked about how God is for His people. 
he favors his people, he protects his people, then what happened? This is the question. Why do you let this happen, God? Which is a question that Naomi may be asked, but she no longer deals with. Is that why did you let this happen? Why did you allow this to pass? So I think sometimes we lead to this question or this thought, is there a greater purpose? Is there a bigger picture? Or is it punishment? Is it a judgment? Which is irrelevant to non-believers. And we have to kind of see that apart. This is just cause and effect for people who are not God's people. But for His people, is it a punishment? No, there isn't a punishment. So is it disciplining? And I think people can suffer the same tragedies and afflictions. And there is a difference between God's people and people who are not God's people. That it's different for us. We don't understand. We don't know why. But we know that it's different for us. We know God is sovereign. And in that we may find bitter, but it's the goodness of God that leads us to believe that but there's something more to this because God is good. That's what we want to think. That's what we like to think. That's what we like to believe. That we matter to God and He has bigger things in mind. But that's good. For But for where Naomi is, at the time of tragedy, the only question we have left is why? And all we see is God's hand of providence is no longer out there. It's folded firmly. And He's looking on in distance. And He's silent. And at times, we feel this. And the question is, why? But there's more. I think oftentimes, we remain at why. But the step that we need to go forward from this is, if we believe that God is sovereign and, and good, where we move to is, well, is there hope? What's coming after this? Is there hope coming? Verse 22. So Naomi returned together with Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, who came back with her from the country of Moab. They came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. The beginning of barley harvest. That's the hope. The author leaves us at the end of this story. There's tragedies. And Naomi has known nothing but afflictions and tragedies. But they leave this. The author leaves this and, and, and allow us to see and get us this sense that there's something good that is about to happen in their lives. So, let me close with this. God's hand of providence that we talked about is sometimes held back. It's folded away. It's distant. It's not visible. But not for long. Right? Um, and we don't understand. We hate it. But when we accept the sovereignty of God, we also have to accept that God can do whatever He wants. It's, he can do whatever he, he wants. He's sovereign. But He's also good. That means we need to turn and trust God, even when we don't understand. Ruth somehow trusts God. And we ask, why does Ruth make this move, bold move? And I think she did it, and this is all my opinion. I think she did it because of prayer. She heard the prayer of Ruth. She, Ruth prayed, May my God bless you. So prayer in the midst of tragedy. Acknowledge that God has His arms folded, but it's not for long. And we see that, we read that throughout the Psalms and throughout the Bible, that God, the treasure is there, but do not let this be long. Come for hope. And in that prayer, we acknowledge God even though there's a blame, there's acceptance, there's a bowing down, there's humility, asking God, is there hope coming? Prayer reaches God for hopes 
and trust and enriches others. That's why when we find others in tragedy, the best thing we can do, and it's actually it's the best thing we can do, is pray. Here's what Ruth Naomi did for Ruth. And in prayer of Naomi, Ruth found hope. And, and Ruth chased after that prayer, chased after that hope. We don't know why God holds back His hand of providence. But we also know of a story when God held back His providence and folded, His arms folded firmly when His Son was hung on the cross. And He cried just like Naomi. He cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that God has a greater purpose than He had a mission to save us And He has for us too. And we trust that. Jesus cried out to God. And and that's the example. As we remember in this time of Lent. That we can also cry out to God. And while the sorrow and hardships last. There is hope. Because God is good and God is sovereign. Let me pray. Jesus we don't like the story of tragedies because our lives are terrible. <laughs> this world is filled with sadness and hurt and tragedies. And at times you seem distant and silent. And we don't know how to deal with it, Lord, but help us to learn from the story that we have um, studied to look for you for hope. And to trust in you because you are loving God and you are sovereign. So that we pray that your spirit leaders from questioning why to seek hope. And when our friends are in hardships and hurt, that we would pray for them because that would lead them to you, to hope. In our lack of understanding, Lord, I pray that you give us at least trust that even we can trust you even when we don't understand. In Jesus' name, amen.